we've been talking a lot about throughout this series about how this book is a very direct book. It's a very practical book. Uh, James often deals with very everyday reality sort of things. And the Bible in general does that, but, but James has a knack for getting specifically at some of the things that we just face every day. And so it confronts us sometimes in a very direct way that's almost hard for us to hear because it's, it's so simple, it's so clear, it's so direct, it's so right there. And uh, this, this text is very much like that. And, so, and, and although he, he deals with everyday experiences of life, he does it in a way, not just by keeping it at that level, but by kind of lifting our eyes to an eternal perspective of how to look at these things. And that's definitely what goes on in this passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, let's go to James 4, uh, starting at verse 13. This is what James writes. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you can make your name holy and seen as holy and known as holy throughout the earth. We ask that your will can be done on earth as it's currently being done in heaven. We just thank you for your many gifts, and we ask that you can give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts that we've incurred against you, and our offenses against you, and our trespasses against your law and your desires for us, and help us to be a forgiving people who forgive those who trespass against us. We ask that you can lead us not into temptation. You can help us to understand that the things that are put in our path are tests opportunities to strengthen our faith and deliver us far from the evil one. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Just help us to hear from you today and to be eager to hear from you and to expect to hear from you. Pray these things in the strong, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So this, this is a passage that, uh, if you don't know it, you might be shocked by its, its directness, by how it just gets to the point. And if you do know it, and if you are familiar with it, chances are this is a passage you kind of you try to forget. You like to put it off into the back of your mind somewhere. It's not, it's not common that this is a life verse for people, because it is so direct. And we like, to kinda, you know, we like to focus on some of the more vague passages and play around with them and figure out what they mean. But one like this, we just you know, try to put it to the side a little bit. I know that I try to forget this passage often. And the reason why I think we try to forget it is because, yes, it confronts us so directly. And what it's confronting in us is this attitude that we have daily, a disposition of our hearts, this disposition of pride, really, of arrogance, of a self-certainty. And uh, when, when we zoom out and remember what's going on in James as a whole... I think that we see this underlying issue of pride all over the place. He, d- he doesn't call it as such all the time, but it's underlying 
there all over the place. James talks about how, how people who stare into the mirror of Christ's word and, and they see the things that they need to change in their life, but then they walk away without giving it a second thought. James talks about people who, who think that they're religious, who think that they're pious and devoted, but instead of helping the poor and afflicted and oppressed, they gossip about them. They speak evil against them. James talks about people who show partiality to those who are wealthy, to those who have a fine appearance. You, you treat them especially good. James talks about those who speak evil against one another just in, in daily life. And he says that when you do this, it goes to show that you are thinking of yourself as a judge. Because you're thinking of yourself as someone who has a right to do that. Someone who's in the position to do that justifiably. And then he says in, verse, uh, or in chapter 4, verse 12, and this is right before our passage, James says, but there's only one judge. He who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Arrogance, pride, is all over the place. James is dealing with it in a lot of different spots, in the different sorts of forms that he's concerned that it might be taking. Because he knows that it isn't just an attitude that everyone explicitly recognizes. It's something that's a little bit more under the surface. And what he's saying is the only people who could possibly do these things that I just listed off, the only people who could possibly do these things are people living arrogantly, people living with a spiritual pride without recognizing their own actual position in this life. And it makes sense that, uh, that pride would take on many different forms when you think about it. Because as it's often been said by many Christians, pride on a basic level actually underlies all sin and all disobedience. And somewhere or another, the root of it is always going to be pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he says, all other sins, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison because pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind, he says. Because, because what, is, what is pride when you think about it, you know, just in a basic way? What is pride? At the very least, pride is thinking that there's something about you that's, that's quite something, you know? That's something special, something that's about you that's especially impressive, or capable, or praiseworthy, or good, or interesting. But what does it mean to know, to actually know God? To actually know God means you know Him as not just impressive, but glorious. You know Him not just as capable, but infinitely able, as a lot of the psalms that, that we were reading and the songs we were singing this morning attest to. It means to know him as worthy of all praise and all admiration. To know him as utterly good and holy. So this is, this is why Lewis calls pride the anti-God state of mind. It has no room for God. It doesn't even allow God to take the position he rightfully deserves because we're too busy crowding at that space with, with thoughts about ourselves. And so we fundamentally don't recognize the rightful place we're, we're supposed to occupy and we're taking God's spot. And in case you're curious about this from a biblical perspective, you know, if you, if you just think of, of when everybody, whenever anybody in the Bible has a genuine, authentic encounter with God, you think about what happens. Just, just for a couple examples, Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, 
Woe to me, I'm undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the, in the book of Revelation, John, he, he has this majestic vision of Christ. And then at the end of the whole thing, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And if you look at these passages, there's this gracious healing and restoring that happens immediately afterwards. But the point is that whenever God, in his fullness, is encountered, whenever he's seen for who he actually is, there's a drastic and immediate relativizing of everything else, especially ourselves and thoughts of ourselves. Lewis even says, The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. But it's better to forget about yourself altogether, he says. So with with this in mind, with this kind of setting a bit of the background, let's, let's see how James begins his passage. He starts off by saying, All right now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town, spend time there, make a profit, yet you don't even know what tomorrow holds. Now, because of the time of James's writing, this, this point has an especially sharp edge for the wealthy elite that are in the congregations he's writing to. Uh, James is writing at a time when between 70 and 80% of the Roman Empire is living completely hand-to-mouth. So when James is addressing people who have the freedom, you know, they have the freedom to head to whatever city as they please, set up shop, be confident that they're going to turn a profit. When he's talking to these people, he's talking to a very elite class. We have no doubts about that. And this is a world without any sort of welfare structures in a, in a modern sense at all. So the support of wealthy patrons played a crucial role in just keeping people alive in the Roman Empire. If the wealthy didn't employ, support, or otherwise share goods somehow with the poor, people regularly died. So although there's, there's definitely a general principle that we can draw out of this passage, there's also something a bit more specific going on when you, when you think about some of the other things that James has said. Uh, one biblical scholar even says, this passage here is one of the most important biblical sources for a Christian ethic of business. And I read that and I said to myself, thank goodness we don't have any business people in our church, you know. We can, we can avoid that altogether, so it's really good, so don't worry about how that affects any of us. So like we said, in a lot of ways in this letter, James is taking aim at pride, specifically in its various forms. And James is wise enough to know how this connects to wealth. How this connects to wealth. He knows that there's an arrogant sense of autonomy that can often accompany wealth. And this is a wealth that that most of us here are all familiar with just by virtue of being Westerners in the 21st century compared to what he's talking about. We're all familiar with this sort of wealth and this autonomy that comes along with it. Uh, we, we know what it can do. We know what it can do to our hearts. It gives us a sense of freedom. It gives us a sense of control. In certain cases, it can, it can give us a sense of invincibility if we take it far enough. And at the very least, it gives us a sense of autonomy, no restrictions. We kind of, you have enough money, you get to do what you want to do. And the people that James is, is addressing here, they're calling the shots. Very specifically, they're calling the shots. And notice that it's not having wealth that's even the issue here. When you read what he's actually saying, it's not that that's the issue. It's the blatant, single-minded desire for more of it. 
and letting that be the only thing that's influencing planning and thoughts about the future. It's a desire so focused, so determined, that it doesn't make room for anything else at all. It doesn't include the poor in these people's own Christian community. And given what we've already seen of James, we know that that would have bothered him. Huge. Would have been a big issue to him. And it's a desire, it's a plan, that doesn't even include God himself. He doesn't factor in at all. So, you know, you talk about pride, and this is, this is really the height of it here. These people openly talking about this. And I want us to notice something. What, what James goes after here is not just the plans themselves, or even the attitude itself. He goes after the speech. And I found that really interesting when I, when I was studying this, because I think we kind of skim over that, and we think that's just, you know, that's kind of his way of getting to his main point, but, he, but that's not true. He's going after the speech. He says, you who say that you're going to do all these things, who do, you, who do you think you are? You should be instead saying, if it's the Lord's will, we'll even live, let alone do all these other things that we're planning on doing. So that's interesting. It's really interesting because in our, in our time and in our tradition, and especially with where we are in, in, in the Protestant tradition and in the sort of church we are, it's very easy for us to always, 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 always want to bring things back to the heart and just leave it there and forget about all the other things that that connects to. God knows my heart. It's all about what's in our heart. As long as our heart is right before the Lord, that's the only thing that matters. But James knows that you can't pull these things apart. He gets that. The mouth only speaks what the heart already had in it. This is the brother of our Lord Jesus who said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And James has already talked about a very similar idea himself when when Maureen preached on this a number of weeks ago. James says a very similar thing to this. So he understands you can't pull these things apart. And this connects perfectly well with, with the thing that James is very famous for when he's talking about the inseparability of faith and works. This connects very well to that because James says... You go ahead and try to show me your faith apart from works. Go ahead. Because you can't do it. You're not going to be able to do it. Instead, I'll show you my faith by my works. And in the same way, you can't have a heart, a good heart, apart from good speech. Good use of the tongue. To the one who speaks arrogantly, to the one who speaks arrogantly and then afterwards says, well, you know what, it's the heart that counts. James would say, yeah, it is. And you've just revealed what's in yours by what you've been saying. It's an inseparable thing to him. James knows you can't disconnect these things. The mouth always speaks what the heart is full of. Meaning, in this situation, meaning the one who talks often, like he or she runs the show, that person thinks that they run the show. It wouldn't be overflowing that way if it were otherwise. That's what James is saying. Or to flip it the other way, if someone is deeply deeply aware of their need for God's grace, God's guidance, God's mercy. If someone is deeply aware in their heart of those things, it's going to come out in their speech. It can't not, is what he's saying. So I think this bit about you who say these things is actually significant. It's not just a way of kind of getting to a different sort of point. It's actually a specific thing. Okay, so for us, does this mean... Does this mean that James thinks that we should literally say, Lord willing, 
when we talk about the future and our plans? Yeah, I think, I think it does. I think, I think this is an example where we see this, and there's no reason to think that this doesn't apply in our world, doesn't apply to our culture. And of course, this should, should not be done in an empty, ritualistic way, which is often the thing, by the way, that we get very suspicious of. Whenever there's a, you know, a kind of a clear biblical command, we think, uh-oh, it's going to become a ritual, and we haven't even tried it yet. But we get scared of what's going to happen if we take it to the nth degree. And, and of course, James doesn't want it to be an empty, ritualistic thing. He wouldn't want thoughtless speech, but he also doesn't want speechless thoughts. Or the real point would be, there is no such thing as speechless thoughts. If you're thinking of these things, they're going to come out in the way that you talk. So he, he's very concerned about these things being together. Heart and speech, faith and works, these things work together. He literally uses that term earlier on in chapter 2. There's a synergy there between these things. They're working together. James wants us to understand why we should say this, but then he wants us to actually go ahead and say it. Don't just, don't just get it and then leave it there. Actually go ahead and say it. Talk about it. And you'll find that these things work together. And they have a symbiotic relationship happening. And look at the reason, look at the reason that James gives for why we should be saying this thing. Why, why we should be talking this way and not this other way. In verse 14 he says, You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist appearing than disappearing. Here and then gone. And James, wisely, draws attention back to the transience of life. This is all over the scriptures. Psalm 39, uh, verses 4 to 5. Psalmist writes, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind is but a mere breath. Psalmist writes that, and, and just as all arrogance and pride become drastically relativized in the presence of God, in the same way, so too, does our perspective on, on this life in relation to eternity. They, they have that relativizing effect on each other. And James wants to remind his people of this eternal perspective. He's very concerned to do that. And not only that, not only that, James, want to get, James wants to give his people a reality check regarding the limited abilities and resources at a human being's disposal. Because we forget that. We forget what we actually have available to us. It's a check on their arrogant pride. Uh, in the year 1875, a man named W.E. Henley wrote a famous poem called Invictus. It's a, it's a Latin word for unconquered. It's a famous poem. And the last stanza of it reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Henley wrote these words in the midst of a lifelong battle with tuberculosis, a disease that led to the amputation of his leg and the near amputation of the other. It's a poem that gets praised as exalting the triumphant human spirit, the undefeatable human spirit. No matter the odds, nothing's going to conquer me. And that's, that sounds great. That sounds really wonderful. But I've been thinking about this a lot, specifically in relation to some of the things James is getting at throughout his book. 
It's a good positive thing to think about not being defeated easily. That's wonderful. But when, you, when I think about this specifically compared to what James is saying, it's really interesting. You think about these first two lines. It matters not. It doesn't even matter how straight the gate, nor the punishments contained in the scroll. So, so it doesn't even matter what life throws at me. It doesn't even make a difference. It doesn't matter what's written in the stars about what's, what's in the cards for me. And you compare that to James 1, where he says what life throws at you does matter. It does make a difference. And in fact, it's an opportunity for joy. This very, very counterintuitive thing. In fact, it's an opportunity for joy because you know that God will produce endurance as a result if you ask him for wisdom to endure. God will produce a Christ-like steadfastness as a result of these things. A steadfastness that couldn't have come any other way. And Henley even, he, he even uses the word punishments, the punishments contained in the scroll, as though that's what the sufferings of life are. And this is the part that we should really, our, our ears should pay attention to, as though that's what life is. It's just this cruel joke filled with punishments written in the stars for us. Whereas James says, don't, don't, don't be deceived. Don't think of your God that way. Don't be deceived. Every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. He's generous. He gives wisdom without finding fault. The one who could find fault doesn't find fault when it comes to giving wisdom. Don't be deceived. The last two lines, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Compare that to James saying, there's only one judge who alone is able to save and to destroy. You are a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. Who are you as a finite creature to say these things? And the reason why this is especially convicting to to all of us, the reason why this is especially convicting is because we all think like this poem, this Invictus poem. We think like that every single day, especially in the world that we live in. We think like that very frequently. Some of us might have the wisdom to, to keep a check on that, but not many of us. And so we, we, we think like this, and then it plays out in our speech, plays out in the way we treat each other, plays out in how we gossip about each other, all that sort of stuff. That's what James has been saying this whole time. And then in verse, or chapter 4, verse 16, James, at the end of all this, he calls it as he sees it, and he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Very direct. And it's actually better to translate this this first part saying, you boast of your arrogances. A plural thing happening. You boast of your arrogances. You talk constantly about your autonomous, master of my fate sort of plans. Not even leaving room for what the Lord might want to do in your life. Not even talking about it. And this boasting is evil, James says. Not, Not inaccurate, not misdirected, not a little uneducated, evil. And why would he say that? He says that because it reveals this proud heart. This heart that is fundamentally anti-God, as C.S. Lewis would say. And when you look at the word that James uses for arrogance, it, it has roots in the idea of being a charlatan. Being a fraud, being showy and obnoxious. And even the word evil here, it, do, it doesn't mean 
unrighteous in some sort of overly spiritualized sense. The word here has to do with behavior that is socially ignorant and inappropriate and unfitting. So James is saying, you know, when you put on these airs of complete autonomy as though you're the master of your fate, when you do that, you're, you're embarrassing yourself. You're acting like a goof. You're not even understanding how reality actually works. You think it's impressive. You think other people are impressed by it, but it's actually ignorant. So get your heart and your speech right. Allow room for God's will. Be open to that. It's all he's asking for, really. Let's look at how James concludes uh, this section here. He says at the end, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. And this is interesting. This is very interesting because this is a very direct, clear verse. But when you think about it, it doesn't really directly have to do with what he's just been saying. You know, you can kind of picture a different sort of way that he might conclude, given what he's been saying so far. And it's this very kind of standalone sort of phrase. You can just memorize that last verse, and it's a very important, good truth and principle to remember. So I think part of what he's saying is this. Okay, now you know the good thing you ought to do. You know the good thing you ought to do, which is to acknowledge the Lord's will, to not do this arrogant boasting, so now do it. Otherwise, it's sin. He's at, he's at least saying that, but when, but when you look at it, he's also leaving it very open and very general. He doesn't just say, whoever fails to do this, whoever fails to do this thing that I've just been talking about, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, if you know the good you're supposed to do and you don't do it, you're sinning. You're in sin. He used the word evil before and now he's talking about sin here. And this, and this is what I absolutely love about this verse. And I've always loved this about this verse from the first time I read it. It wasn't that long ago, probably, the first time I read it, relatively speaking. But what I love about this is, is think of how this changes your perspective of what sin is. And what it actually means to be in sin. Think, think about how this changes your perspective on that. Because how, how do we usually talk about sin and obedience? In my experience, it's often language like, okay, well, does the Bible explicitly say, you know, this thing that I like is wrong? That's, that's the sort of question we'll ask. Can I get away with this other thing over here and still be okay with God? What's the, what's the line that I can't, shouldn't cross? It's probably too bad that the line's there. I probably wish I could cross it, but there's this line that's there. What is it? Or one of, one of the really common ones that you hear lots from people is, is it bad if dot, dot, dot? It's kind of this, you know, it's not as though I know this is bad and I want to avoid it, but is it bad if I do this? And that's one of the common ways we think of sin and obedience. And sometimes, granted, sometimes these are very genuine questions where people are trying to understand how faith works in daily life. But often, I think, it, it, it's, it's kind of like trying to find loopholes in some sort of obscure legal code. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to see what we can kind of get away with and what we can get through what, what can I get away with without being audited by God somehow? And James just brilliantly, brilliantly, he pulls the rug out from this whole way of thinking by reminding us that sin isn't about breaking a dead law. It's about not listening to a living God. It's not about breaking a dead law, some old written code. It's about not listening to a living God who wants to be in relationship with you. And man, I just, I, I think, what if we really took that to heart? What if we took that idea 
to heart that he's saying here. What if everyone here right now thought to themselves, okay, what's, what's that good thing? What's the good? That's, that's the word he uses there, the good. What's the good that I really know I ought to take care of? Just prayerfully thought that through. And then what if we were convicted of the actual sinfulness, not just the inconvenience, but the actual sinfulness of not doing that good thing? Like I, I just think that this solves whatever, 90% of any pastoral issue you can possibly imagine. Just the good thing that you know you ought to do, do it, James says. So forget the legal code approach. Forget the self-justifications. Forget the whole, you know, rationalizations that we make to try to somehow make it seem like we're actually in the clear. Forget about all of that. And you just prayerfully think, what's, what's the good that I know I ought to do? That's all he's saying here. So let that approach have some weight in your life. I'm, tr- I'm trying to do that myself right now. What, let that approach have some weight in my life. What does it actually mean to live that way? And as I was thinking about this, it just reminded me of how in Romans 7, Paul talks about, we don't, we don't serve in the way of the old written code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. And I think this is a very connected thing between those two passages. So just a few points by way of conclusion here. The, the main basic heart of this passage is to make healthy allowance. That's, that's kind of how I've been writing it down. Healthy allowance for the sovereignty of God in our lives. But what does this actually mean? You know? What does that actually mean? Is it, is it just about simply thinking and being aware in a cognitive sense that God might disrupt our plans? Well, it's definitely about that. It's definitely about an awareness and having clear thinking about that. But one of the things that James is so good at, so good at, is calling us out on the ways that our thoughts and attitudes actually reveal themselves in the real world. And the things that he constantly points back to you throughout this book are speech and money. So he's very direct. He understands. You, don't tell me that you think a certain way and it's not affecting your speech. Don't tell me you think a certain way and it's not affecting how you use your money. He gets it. He, he's calling our bluff on this kind of stuff. So when you think about how this applies to us, you think, does the way we use money, and you, and you could even kind of add time to that, does the way that we use money and time show that we're making intentional consideration for the Lord's will in our life? Another thing, although this passage addresses the idea of boasting about tomorrow, it's not saying Christians shouldn't plan, it's not saying Christians shouldn't be strategic in thinking about the future. It's it's not saying that they shouldn't do that and they're just supposed to kind of live ignorantly day by day and that's all there is to it. That's not at all the point. You read the book of Proverbs all over the place, it talks about how that's, that's lazy and foolish to do that. You actually are called to live with wisdom in terms of how you think about the future. So that's, that's not what he's saying. But it is about this healthy allowance, not crowding out the way that the Lord might want to work, not setting your expectations so arrogantly on a certain thing that's only to do with you that you're not at all considering the things that God's calling you to, the good that God's calling you to. But, when, but even when you think about that, even when you take it that far and you think about it from that angle, I just think, okay, well, isn't the Lord going to work how he wants to work anyway? 
right? It's not like my making allowance of God's sovereignty somehow gives him permission to be sovereign. It's not like that determines anything. It doesn't make an actual difference. It's not like his sovereignty is only active if I make room for it. And that's true. That's definitely true. But James is concerned with us actually having fellowship with this God who loves us. He's concerned that we walk with him, that we look like him, that we know him, that we're seeking him, trusting that he's good, trusting that the things he's calling us to, the things that are obedient are good. That's what he's wanting for us. It's not a thing if you're going to miss out on it otherwise. That's, that's not necessarily the case. But be part of it. Be part of what God's doing. Be attentive to his will in your life and walk with him. So there's this real loving fellowship thing that he's emphasizing here. Trusting that he's good. Even, even when the things that he's calling you to are scary. Which is often the case. Even when the things that he's calling you to are scary, mysterious, unknown. Knowing that his goodness and his love will never be compromised by anything. Because that's what Jesus did. And James always has in the back of his mind the character of God when he's talking about these injunctions of the way we ought to live. And he knows that that's how Jesus lived. Jesus, the one who sought the Father's will more obediently, more wholeheartedly than anyone who's ever lived, this same man was terrified to obey it the night before he went to the cross. But he did. Because he knew both the goodness of the Father and the necessity of obedience to him. And it's because Jesus said, Lord willing, with fear in his voice, that we're able to say without fear. Without fear. Without fear, at least in the ultimate sense. Final thing. We closely, in our language, we closely associate the boasting that we talk about here with arrogance and pride. We hear the word boast, that's what we think of. Boasting is bragging, and that's what arrogant, proud, you know, self-righteous people, that's what they do. But the Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle Paul is the only biblical author other than James to use this word in all of Scripture. And the Apostle Paul, he boasts all over the pages of the Bible. All over the place. So the problem isn't boasting. can't be. The problem is what we boast in. And the word in the New Testament, this word, it doesn't have anything to do with bragging. It simply means a feeling of joy or pleasure in being associated with something. You have an attachment with something and you're happy about it. You're boasting in it. Just in that moment, just that pleasure alone, you're boasting in it. That's what the word means in the New Testament. So if your joy comes from being associated with your wealth or your ability, your autonomy, or anything that's only about you, if that's what's happening, then yeah, it's arrogant. It's fraudulent, James is telling us. But look at what Paul says he boasts in. Think about what Paul says that he boasts in. I'll call up uh, the worship team at this time. I'm just going to finish by reading these final few passages here. These are just such profound passages. When you think about what the sort of boasting that James has an issue with and his remedy for it, and you think about what Paul says about boasting. Romans 5, 11, Paul says, We boast in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about his sufferings and his weakness. And he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And the final boast that I'll read through, this is one of the best verses, I think, that there could possibly be. Paul says, but far be it from me to boast in anything. May it never be to me that I boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And just... As we've been seeing and learning as we look at this this book of James, we we thank you for your character that's unchanging. We thank you that despite the ups and downs of life, and even the really dark, uh, scary moments that some of us are going through right now, we thank you that your very word tells us that we can trust in your goodness. We thank you that James even warns us to not be deceived, to not doubt your goodness to know in our bones that we can trust that you're good and that you love us. We just thank you for that. And we ask that the, the things that this text is calling us to can really take root in our hearts, that our, that our actions, that our speech can be overflowing with what you've given to our hearts. And Lord, when we think about obedience and submission to your will, it is, it is scary a lot of the time. But we just thank you that your son was obedient to your will. And he was the one who prayed, your will be done, before we ever did. And we thank you for how that changes things. We thank you for how that takes away all fear, ultimately. So just help that to become more of a reality in our life. And Lord, let us just praise you in our hearts. Let us praise you with our tongue. Let us praise you with our actions, with our money, with all of these things that James has been talking about so far. Just help it to take root in a real way in our lives. Pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.